Welcome to the podcast on Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Just a reminder that you can find us on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. I'm always interested in hearing your comments or questions or suggestions for what you'd like to hear on the podcast. Please send those to OnBecoming at gmail.com. Additionally, please consider recommending us to your friends reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or donating to our Patreon, which includes access to exclusive members-only content. With this episode, we have reached the eighth and last aspect of Robert J. Lifton's taxonomy of totalistic systems or totalitarian regimes or cults. Just so you know, I've decided to use this theme to tell my own story in three parts. Today I'll be focusing on my youth, In the next episode, I'll be focusing on my years teaching at an evangelical college. In the following episode, I'll be talking about my transition to my life in Scotland. As to Lifton, I'd made the point before that his analysis was first made on Chinese communist thought reforms, in other words, a political system. If you've been listening to these various episodes, I hope you've come to realize how totalistic political systems work and how religious cults work and they end up being very similar, so similar that often what can be said of one can be said of the other. I make this point because we in the West tend to think, well, politics, that's one thing, and religion, well, that's something different. It is, of course, the case that politics and religion are the two things we're warned against discussing in certain social situations. That's because people tend to have strong views on these subjects. But my point here is that these two subjects are really not very different. We usually think of politics as something to do with elections and governments and political systems. You've probably heard the idea that man is a political animal. That's from Aristotle, and I've kept the sexist language since it fits with this idea that women are something like inferior versions of men, and some men are, of course, according to Aristotle, born to be slaves. But Aristotle wasn't talking about politics in the sense we mean today. He simply meant that the habitat of human beings is the polis, which is an ancient Greek word that probably best translates as community rather than state or even city. I've mentioned the idea from the French sociologist Emile Durkheim that we are both individuals and social beings, what he calls homo duplex. In the wake of both the Reformation and the Enlightenment, we tend to emphasize the individuality of human beings over the communal aspect Yet no one is ever simply a lone individual. Human beings are born incredibly fragile, which means that none of us could survive without someone feeding us, bathing us, clothing us. Well, you get the idea. In other words, that we've survived from birth means that someone, and usually more than just one someone, has taken care of us. And that means that our existence is ineluctably connected to other human beings. When I bring up this point, in class with students in an intro to philosophy course. Sometimes a student would speak up and say something like, oh, what about someone who was raised by wolves? I would, of course, immediately remind everyone that this kind of case is highly unusual, but then go on to point out that someone in this situation would still be in a community, albeit a very different one than most of us experience. And that's my point. A religious community is also a community, which means it's also political. Growing up at evangelicalism, I was told that religion had nothing to do with politics. 
but any kind of social organization, whether it's a family, an extended family, a small religious community, a megachurch, it's always political. As you no doubt know, evangelicals decide, at least as far back in the late 1970s, that being involved in politics was probably a good thing. That represented a very significant departure from the fundamentalist ideal of being disconnected from the evil world, which was viewed as secular and bad, and thus potentially a bad influence on one's own personal being. With that point in mind, let's turn to the last category that Lifton terms the dispensing of existence. He opens with this sentence. The totalist environment draws a sharp line between those whose right to existence can be recognized and those who possess no right. One might think that this would likely apply to Maoist re-education, which it certainly does. Yet the reality is that evangelicals really do believe that, on the Judgment Day, the right to exist of billions of people will be put seriously in question. Some evangelicals, notably someone named John Stott, have suggested that God would never simply send those who have never heard the gospel to hell. Instead, he postulated that everyone would be presented with the gospel at some point after death. Those that accepted the gospel would rise to live with God in heaven. Those that refused the gospel would be simply annihilated. Although annihilation doesn't exactly sound like an affirmation of human life, it certainly beats an eternity of fiery torture which would seem like a kind of everlasting death. In the case of Maoist reform, those who failed to reform were executed if they failed during a two-year period to conform to the expectations. I've not heard of any evangelical executions, but it became somewhat of a tradition at the school where I taught for gay students to kill themselves on the railroad tracks that run through the campus. They found themselves unable to conform to heterosexual norms and suicide seemed like the only option. In order to understand this thinking, I should point out that evangelicals teach gay or trans people to hate themselves. You might think that I'm making too strong a statement, but I've come to this conclusion after talking to many younger evangelicals who've been brought up in such a way that hating homosexuality, or for that matter, any kind of sexual deviance, is something that must be hated. I've mentioned the old canard, love the sinner, hate the sin, but it's just not possible to separate things so neatly as that. Hating the sin is simply going to leech into hating the sinner. Of course, if you listen to the rhetoric of many evangelicals, they seem to be comfortable with hating both the sin and the sinner. And in fact, if one can so penetrate the wills and minds of adherents of a religious group, causing them to think that they are the evil people, no extermination is necessary people exterminate themselves, or else they do everything possible to conform. Lifton describes the situation as follows. Experiencing the polar emotional conflict of being versus nothingness, the individual is likely to be drawn to a conversion experience, which he or she sees as the only means of attaining a path in the future. In place of the existence of the individual is the sacred creed and the divinely expected obedience. As he puts it, existence come to depend upon the creed. I believe, therefore I am. Upon submission, I obey, therefore I am. 
and beyond these upon a sense of total merger with the ideological movement. Let me put that in other words. If the alternative is nothingness, death or less violent, the exclusion from the community, then who's going to choose death or, for that matter, exclusion? Most people in a situation like this will surmise that their only hope of continuing to exist, to live, is dependent upon accepting whatever creed must be accepted, obeying whatever authorities that have the power to negate your existence. Again, you might think this is too strong, but if being part of the community in which you grew up or the community you've adopted is important to you, then being cast out of that community is something you really want to avoid. I can no longer see myself as part of the evangelical world, though I have to say that was not my choice. But the idea that you could just walk away as if nothing much happened is way too optimistic. Not being part of the community that includes your family and friends means that your connection with your family may be threatened, or it may only continue with considerable strain. If you live in the United States, you probably realize that, and here I'm just using a convenient example, that either supporting Trump or not supporting him may have significant consequences for your relationship with anyone on the other side. Indeed, the very fact that you have to choose sides is already a major problem, since it means that a point of possible connection becomes a point of disconnection perhaps so much that you now feel uncomfortable hanging out with those people on the other side. Or perhaps those people simply refuse to talk to you. I've used this clearly political example to make the point that support either way may lead to separation within families and between friends. However, it goes deeper than that, since supporting one political candidate over another often, and perhaps usually speaks of a different, deeper separation. Many evangelicals have argued that supporting Trump is a requirement for you to be a good evangelical. I've given the example of Wayne Grudem, someone who was once a colleague of my father and someone that I know, who came out in support of Trump in 2016. Grudem makes it clear that in his view, being a good evangelical requires supporting Trump. Of course, there are likewise evangelicals who have argued precisely the opposite, that supporting Trump is a betrayal of evangelical beliefs and principles. However, since over 80% of evangelicals voted for Trump in 2016, not supporting Trump is clearly the minority evangelical view. For most people, supporting Trump or not supporting him ends up being about what you consider important a person, or in this case, also a political party. And that says a great deal about who you are as a person and what values are important to you. Such a choice has very deep implications. If your inclination is to disparage evangelicals for making such a choice, my suggestion is that you first consider why they've made that choice. I don't have time to do that in this episode, but it's truly important. We need to add a further element here. Lifton says that, and again I'm quoting, the dispensing of human existence is a flagrant expression of what the Greeks called hubris of arrogant humans claiming to be God. While he's speaking of the Chinese communists, I can't think of a better way of talking about the evangelical assumption that ends up going something like this. The evangelical hierarchy claims that it speaks for God. Here's the problem. It's a short step from claiming to speak for God to thinking that one, in one way or another, is God. Or perhaps better put, 
at least can pass judgment as if one were God. Chinese communists, of course, saw themselves as atheists, but you can't get away from the notion of God as easily as that. I'm not talking about the fact that atheism already includes the word theism, though that's important too. We tend to forget that defining ourselves in opposition to something makes the thing or person or belief part of our definition too. But that's also not my focus. Instead, I mean this. In one form or another, God is always part of the picture since there's always someone or something that takes the place of God. This is one reason, though not the only reason, why I believe that labeling oneself an atheist simply doesn't get one out of the problem that one way or the other, one believes that something is absolute or that something gets as close to absolute as is possible. For many people who consider themselves to be atheists, that something is likely to be matter, the view that matter is all there is. Philosophers tend to call this view materialism, which is different from the kind of materialism that manifests itself in terms of having lots of material stuff. Of course, if you're really interested in having lots of material stuff, you probably are a materialist, to some extent, in this philosophical sense. In this sense, evangelicals are far more materialistic than they think. You don't have to be religious to have a notion of the sacred. You simply need to believe that something is sacred. You might think that the sacred has to be something religious or quasi-religious or perhaps even spiritual. In one sense, that's correct. Whatever is sacred to you, unusual community to which you belong, is religious in the sense of binding you with others who take that thing to be sacred too. But starting with an established idea of the sacred, God, Jesus, Zeus, and then concluding that this is the sacred is the wrong way to go about it. Instead, ask yourself, what's most important to me? If you need help, consider what you've done or haven't done, say, in the last two weeks. What did you spend your time doing? If you say that something is sacred to you, but you've not spent any time or energy on it, it's unlikely that it's really that sacred to you. I devoted an entire episode to football, arguing that for millions of people, this is their religion. I mean that in the strongest possible sense, not that somehow that football is like or analogous to religion, but that it is religion. But the sacred for you might be fame or fortune or knowledge or some other thing, tangible or intangible. Evangelicals usually maintain that God or Jesus is sacred. The beliefs they hold are sacred. Devoting one's life to God is sacred. I could go on. But what does that mean in practice? In my mind, I'm going back to when I was five years old. Back then, we lived in a house in downtown Minneapolis, and my father was the pastor for Christian education at a large church in town. I don't remember what prompted the conversation, but I can remember my mother telling me that I needed to accept Jesus into my heart. When you're a five-year-old and your mother tells you that you need to do something, you don't have a lot of choice. However, I don't mean to suggest that I was coerced. I was more than happy to follow her directions. In practice, that meant that I kneeled in prayer at my bed and prayed a prayer that was largely directed by my mother. It was a beautifully sunny day, 
and I remember feeling as if something magical had happened when I finished the prayer. I can't remember the exact words, though I don't need to remember. The evangelical prayer for salvation is pretty simple. It involves acknowledging that you are a sinner, that you repent of your sin, and that you want Jesus to be your Savior. To be honest, I probably didn't really understand the sinner part. I knew what it was to do something wrong and to be punished for that, which is probably all you need to know at that age. Years later, I was fascinated to hear the story, told by one of my professors who taught me church history, of a five-year-old singing the first line of a hymn to the very person who had written that hymn. The hymn is called Love Lifted Me, and the first line is, I was sinking deep in sin. That story was actually told as a humorous anecdote. What five-year-old is sinking deep in sin? Still, I remember the song well, and probably could have sung all three verses by heart by the time I turned ten. Later that year, we moved from Minnesota to California, where my father became the director of Christian education at a large church in Pasadena. Those were generally happy years. I remember singing in front of the entire congregation with two other kids, it was a trio, and finding it very moving spiritually. I was more than happy to attend Sunday school, church on Sunday morning and evening, and on Wednesday nights. I memorized tons of Bible verses, and I still have a small children's book titled A Child's Thought of God, in which the inscription reads, presented to Bruce Benson with highest honor by the Lake Avenue Congregational Church. It even came with a neat little blue ribbon. Because the church was very close to Fuller Seminary, many of the faculty from there attended the church. For years, I repeated the verses I had learned to Mrs. Bromley. She was such a lovely and kind woman, though she spoke with a funny accent. I later learned that was British. It was only many years later that I finally realized that Mrs. Bromley was the wife of Jeffrey Bromley, the person who translated Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics into English. You may now know that I live in Edinburgh. Bromley did his PhD here, served as the rector of an Anglican church in town, and then was appointed to his position in Fuller. Bromley was the co-editor of the Bart translation with T.F. Torrance, who is the uncle of the person Alan Torrance, who invited and funded me to come to Scotland. I'm constantly reminded of how small the world really is. As I say, those were largely happy years. However, I've already mentioned that when I was five or six, I was in the car with my mother on the way home from Pasadena Christian School. At some point, I said to her, I'm not like all the other kids. She quickly tried to reassure me that, yeah, I was just like them, which is exactly what you'd expect a caring mother to do. But I also knew that that was incorrect. It was only much later that I realized that in an important sense, she hadn't really heard me. And it was only later that I came to realize that from that point on, in other words, at age five or six, I already had a sense that I was kind of on my own. What I mean by that is no one was going to be able to understand what I meant by feeling that I was different, which is sort of what being different is about. Perhaps some of you listening have had this sense of being different, of not quite fitting in and not knowing how to explain that or to make sense of it. But even more important for the five- or six-year-old me, I myself didn't understand what that meant, even though it was as clear as day to me 
that it was true. It wasn't until my mid-twenties when I finally read a book by my distant ancestor Lucy Maud Montgomery that I started to understand. Lucy Maud was a very independent, progressive thinker. Her depiction of Anne of Green Gables was exactly that, a strong-willed, creative, independent person. It's clear that Lucy Maud fashioned Anne after herself. For that kind of strong-willed, independent person was exactly what my grandmother, Mabel Evelyn Montgomery, was like. And so was I. When Anne first meets Diana Barry, who would become her best friend, Diana says, You're a queer girl, Anne. I heard before that you were queer. But I believe I'm going to like you real well. If you've read any of these books or seen the series made by the BBC or the Netflix version, you'll know that Anne is creative, spontaneous, and very much an unusual person in her little town of Avonlea. Reading those books helped me to understand myself in ways that up until then I simply didn't understand. I had never read a depiction of someone who was so close to myself. I readily identified with Anne being queer, though I only figured out the sexual aspect of that. By the way, just to be clear, Anne is straight. I only figured out that aspect many years later. Do keep in mind that the term queer originally simply meant something like strange or different. But let's go back to me as a little kid in Pasadena. Well, actually, we lived in Altadena, which is just north of Pasadena. I think I've talked about how I thought that sports were dumb. I realize that dumb isn't exactly an intellectual sort of word, but that's how my kid self would have put it. I simply couldn't get excited about who had the ball or who ran fastest or any of those kinds of things. It wasn't that I was a five-year-old intellectual. I just had different interests. I loved exploring things. I loved reading books about kids who solved mysteries. I was definitely a bookworm. I've had multiple students over the years ask me how I learned to write. The answer is pretty simple. I read a lot. But I also love to di diagram sentences. Yes, I realize that's completely weird. Guilty as charged. And I also spent many happy hours reading P.G. Woodhouse, the ultimate wordsmith. You can't help but learn to write well by reading Woodhouse. It allowed me to break free from the usual academic style. I gave a paper a few years ago, and there was this German guy who came up to me afterwards. He said something like, I never thought that an academic paper could be so entertaining. Having listened to lots of German academic papers, it's not a surprise that this was a new experience for him. When I was nine, we moved to Wheaton, Illinois, which is a western suburb of Chicago. That was like a shock to the system. The weather, of course, was very different. But one of the physical manifestations was the development, almost immediately, of severe respiratory allergies. I was born with an autoimmune condition known as eczema, which is something my father had. It's something associated with stress. I would have expected that any allergies would have already manifested themselves when we were living in L.A. After all, as I later discovered, Breathing the air in L.A. back then was equivalent to smoking two packs of cigarettes per day. Yet like autoimmune diseases, allergies are also not purely physical. When we moved, my parents discovered that the school just a few blocks away was overcrowded, which meant that I had to go to a school a long way from our house. I was literally the only kid in the entire school who stayed at the school for lunch. Everyone else went home. 
At that point, my parents only had one car, so I had to walk over a mile to the school. Walking to the school wasn't a big deal, so I'm not complaining about that. But there simply wasn't enough time to walk back home, eat lunch, and then get back to school. Yet it meant that I was attending a school with kids I didn't know. It was tough to move 3,000 miles to a new place and have to make friends. It was even tougher when all the friends on my street went to a different school. That was such a bad year that my parents, and I, decided that I should attend Wheaton Christian Grammar School. That was a brush of fresh air. Let me add that the school change had, at least as far as I know, nothing to do with keeping me away from secular schools. My new teacher was Miss Himmel. It was only later that I discovered that her name means heaven in German. And she was truly wonderful. We had a unit on birds which had us going bird watching. Part of the test was being able to identify different bird calls. We had a unit on trees in which we had to learn to identify leaves, a wide variety of trees. We had trips to the Dial Soap Factory and the factory that made Schwinn bikes. I still remember a worker at the Schwinn Factory who told us, Stay in school or you end up like us. My first big purchase was a Schwinn bike that I bought when I was 12. It was $69.99 plus tax. That was back when Schwinn bikes were among the best bikes made in the U.S. And that was a lot of money for a 12-year-old. The next few years were more mixed. Even back then, I realized that my sixth-grade teacher was mentally unstable. For reasons that I don't understand even today, she seemed to take great delight in picking on me, though later I came to realize that she actually really liked me. As to my seventh-grade science teacher, she repeatedly sent me to the principal's office. I remember telling him that she needed to be fired because she was incompetent. That probably would have sounded like an, an extraordinary thing for a seventh grader to say, but I reminded the principal that I had read some of the books in my father's library, particularly two by John Holt titled How Children Learn and How Children Fail. Today, those two books are considered classics on the subject of educating children. Conversely, my math teacher that year did something that no teacher before or after had ever done, make me interested in math. In other words, already by seventh grade, I understood how strategic the role of the teacher is in making a subject either come alive or rendering it completely uninteresting. We attended the Evangelical Free Church in town. That experience wasn't particularly remarkable. I do think it's interesting that I started helping with the sound system, which meant that for most of the services, I sat in this little room with a teeny window overlooking the stage. It also meant that I was, in a sense, part of the worship team. I'm not quite sure why I started getting interested in audio systems. Somewhere I bought an old shortwave radio and I started listening to stations all over the world. I started babysitting for the people across the street as well as down the street. The husband of the couple across the street worked at Fermilab, the major particle physics laboratory in the United States. Because of that, we ended up having conversations about physics and electronics. The husband of the couple down the street also worked at Fermilab, though I didn't get nearly the chance to pick his brain. However, both of these experiences were eye-opening. Neither family was evangelical. In fact, neither would have identified as Christian, except perhaps in the most nominal sense. When we lived in California, we had a Polish couple who survived the camps on one side of us, and a Yugoslavian couple who had escaped by trekking over the mountains on a rainy night. Evidently, it was hard for the dogs to find the scent. 
on the other side. While the Polish couple never warmed my family and was decidedly secular, the Yugoslavian couple became Christians due to the influence on my parents. But having the chance to talk to people working on the cutting edge of particle physics was enlightening. Moreover, I was then old enough to start to appreciate the differences between their families and ours. It was also around this time that I first started to have doubts about whether I was, how should I put it, evangelical enough. It's hard to put this into words. Perhaps this might help. At the Free Church, we sang lots of songs about how happy evangelical Christians are and how much happier they are than the rest of the world. It started to dawn on me that these songs didn't reflect my reality. We were singing about how happy life with Jesus is, and I started realizing that my life didn't seem any better or happier than the people for whom I babysat. They clearly weren't Christians, but their lives didn't seem any worse than ours. I started wondering if there was something wrong with me. Why didn't I experience this great joy people at the church were singing about? As a result of those fears or perhaps insecurities, I ended up going forward one Sunday night at the altar call. Oh, yes, we had those. My parents were mystified since I had already asked Jesus into my heart at age five. But there was a growing disconnect between what I was being taught about evangelicalism and my own experience. Somehow I just wasn't having the wonderful life that having Jesus in your heart was supposed to bring. Bear in mind, these were difficult years for my family. My father was working on a doctorate in Chicago, about an hour in one direction, teaching part-time at an evangelical seminary, about an hour in, in another direction, and flying around the country promoting Sunday school material. He wasn't around that much during those years, and even then I realized that these were just hard times for him and for all of us. I don't remember having any resentment about him being away so much, and I certainly don't resent it today. If anything, I'm now even more impressed that my father was able to make all of that work. Both of my parents came from families that, while not wealthy, were well off. But money just wasn't important to them. What was important to them was doing the work of the Lord. And I was, as writing that, I couldn't help but think of the poem written by the missionary C.T. Studd with the lines, Only one life twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. There were never any doubts about that motivation in my parents' lives. It was only later on that I came to realize that my father often took on speaking engagements at churches that never ended up paying for him not even for his travel expenses. When I discovered that, I was outraged. Surely the laborer is worthy of his hire. But that sort of thing just didn't matter to my dad. He often spoke at small churches that were no wealthier than we were. He knew that, and he simply didn't fret when the churches forgot to pay him. That was the kind of service in which my parents were engaged, and it was clearly a choice they had made one that deeply reflected their idea of what was important. My father's father had been a salesman and had made a lot of money, but he was also head of the Sunday school program for the largest church in Chicago, a position for which he was never paid. So that kind of giving of oneself ran in the family. When I was 14, we moved to Dallas, Texas. That was also a shock to the system. 
One thing that unites people from California and Texas is their loyalty to their respective states. Texans love Texas, which really is, like California, its own thing. All of us speak with an accent, but in Texas that's much more obvious than either Illinois or California. I discovered that Texans love to talk about the South rising again, even though true Southerners, you know, people like, for, for instance, from Georgia, don't think of Texas as part of the South. But I was also shocked by how comfortable people were in saying things that struck me as somewhat racist. Perhaps I had been too young to notice it before, but I don't think that's the full explanation. When I say that people said things that were racist, I'm talking about the people with whom I went to church. At least back then, evangelicals in Texas saw the Southern Baptists as backsliders. Upon hearing that my father taught at a seminary, the librarian of my school asked me whether it was true that the Bible didn't allow marriages between people of different races. When I raised that question with my father, his quick response was the Bible didn't say any such thing. Well, there is a passage in Deuteronomy that forbade the Israelites from marrying with non-Jews, such a prohibition had nothing to do with race. Instead, it was about marrying people who worshipped false gods. Another example was how casually people talked about bringing back slavery. We had moved to Dallas in order that my father could teach at the seminary that he had attended, Dallas Theological Seminary. It was well known that people who taught at Dallas didn't make enough money to make ends meet, which is why most of the faculty had speaking gigs on the side. I never had the sense, though, that we were poor, though our financial means were clearly limited. I attended what was, at least then, considered to be the best public high school in Dallas. My father longed to send me to a private Episcopal school in town, but we simply couldn't afford that. I've often wondered how my life might have been different if I had gone there. As it was, I found most of my high school classes to be a waste of time. I really loved my Spanish, English, and history classes. And in all three classes, it was because of the quality of teaching. Oh, and I should add, I took a course on English grammar in which we got to diagram a lot of sentences. In contrast, my biology class was taught by the football coach, whose strategy was to read directly from the textbook and then give exams that required almost complete memorization of that book. I'm sure I wasn't the only student who wondered whether he could pass his own exams. My relationship to school was entirely transactional. I went there when there was a class and left as soon as I could. In Texas culture back then, and I expect today, football was a religion. That meant we were forced to attend pep rallies on Friday afternoons, an excruciatingly painful experience. I confess that I never attended a single game, nor do I have any idea whatsoever as to how well the team played. We attended a church called Reinhardt Bible Church, which was pastored by a very lovely man who preached incredibly boring sermons. That view was shared by my parents. But they had chosen this church strategically because it had a great youth program. Almost all of my sense of community came from attending this church. A wealthy person in the church opened up her home on Sunday and Wednesday evenings, and I was always there. 
She and I became good friends, and I am even to this day extremely grateful for her kindness and hospitality. The house and grounds, which included a large swimming pool, a tennis court, and smaller building, took up the equivalent of about four lots. As much as I liked the youth leader, I simply couldn't relate to him. But I don't think I've ever found a community since then in which I felt so much at home. Let me explain that a little more. I can remember playing volleyball with the group, which is something we did whenever the weather was nice. That was something at which I simply didn't excel. But everyone in the youth group knew that, and I think it's safe to say they went out of their way to help me out on the court. It simply wasn't the kind of group in which anyone was trying to make someone else feel bad about themselves. And that's probably the most important thing I can say about that group of people. They simply accepted me for who I was. Most people outside of religion assume that religious people are bound by common beliefs. That's not entirely wrong. But I think what holds a community together is a sense of belonging, of being part of a community. The beliefs are important, but I think they're clearly secondary. Indeed, most of my work in the philosophy of religion is focused on this sense of belonging and the idea of the lived experience in which beliefs are manifested and held by living them out. It wasn't until I started attending an Episcopal church, in other words, a liberal mainline denomination, that I finally got used to saying the Nicene Creed every week. There simply wasn't, and as far as I know, isn't any equivalent of that in the evangelical tradition. I've already talked about the fact that my first job was working as a janitor at the church. That connected me to the church even more, though as I've mentioned, that connection also became a little more problematic. Because when you're a janitor, you start to see how everything works. And that, of course, was somewhat disconcerting. I had already had some insight into the world of church back when I was running sound for the services in my previous church. Toward the end of our time there, the church got a new pastor. Not long after we left, there was a serious church split. But I wasn't at all surprised when I heard that news. The new pastor was incredibly arrogant, which is something I was able to observe largely because I interacted with him before and after the service. My time in Dallas was brought to a close when I graduated from high school a semester early, and then I started working as a DJ for the local Christian radio station, which gave me even more insight into how things actually worked. That station was owned by the First Baptist Church of Dallas, pastored by the famed W.A. Criswell. I may have mentioned that I only worked there for about 30 or 32 hours a week, in other words, I was almost full-time, but not quite. When I asked about why that was the case, I was told that it was due to me not being a member of the church. And when I suggested to the station manager, with whom I had a very good relationship, that the FCC might not look kindly at that, he laughed and said, well, we'd just tell them that you weren't a very good announcer. As I say, I got an idea into how things worked. But I'm going to stop there. Next week, I'll be talking about the next stage of my life, attending graduate school and then teaching at an evangelical college. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, 
and you've been listening to On Becoming. Please join us next week.